Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 182 being recorded on Wednesday, July 31st, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, it's been a while since we were able to get together, given the, the holiday season, the vacations going on. Uh, and then we had some guests in there that had some important topics we wanted to cover. So we thought it would be a good time to go and catch up on some news. Uh, there's been a fair amount going on in the world of e-commerce as, you know, having been at this for feels like forever. Uh, you know, you, you kind of summer's kind of quiet. And then here in this kind of Q3 period is where it gets really newsy as we head into the holiday selling season. So uh, we thought we'd go over some of that. Uh, but before we do, Jason, you have been a busy traveler. Uh, tell us about some of the, the trips you've been on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have been on a couple of trips, but uh, full full disclosure, a number of them have been vacation. And so I'm I'm a little proud. I feel like you probably beat me on quality of summer vacation, but I feel like I at least beat you on quantity of summer vacation. Yeah, yeah. You were able to get a couple of weeks in there and I, I'm a... I can go further because I'm, I don't have to carry a eight pound, 80 pound espresso machine with me. I think that that kind of limits your options, but uh, so uh, it enables me to fly over to Europe and stuff. So we got to free you from the shackles of the espresso machine. <laughs> exactly. You, uh, I don't know if you think you're joking or not, but uh, I, I did. I took two vacations. I visited uh, my family in, in San Diego for the 4th of July and I, uh, went to Upper Lake Michigan with my wife's family and the Upper Lake Michigan uh, lake house is remote enough that I did have to bring my own espresso machine. Oh, I know. I know. I'm familiar. Yeah. Uh, but I'm calling it a big <laughs> win. I actually, uh, consumer pro tip years past, I bought the new Nespresso, which is called the Virtuoso, which is this fancier system. And I was never actually that happy with the shots. Um, and so this year I retired it and bought the older Nespresso original system and uh, much happier with the shots. There's a much greater diversity of coffee available for it. So I was actually able to buy my Starbucks pods to, to go in that coffee. So my, my lattes were both much better. And this little town we, we stay in, North Point Port, last year had zero espresso machines in the town. And this year they had two. So I feel like like it was all green lights. Nice. Nice. You're, you're making America better. Yeah. Um, but so in between all of that leisure activity, um, I took the, the opportunity during the heat wave to go to Las Vegas um, for a new show that NRF has launched this year called NRF Next. And they cleverly spell it like the hipster kids uh, NXT. Mm, it's um, very cool to drop uh, any kind of vowels. So kudos. Exactly. To uh, it's Leet Speak. Um, and they, uh, they important show to me because, uh, it's somewhat of the spiritual successor to the shop.org annual summits when shop.org used to be a separate entity from NRF. 
Um, and so this was the first year of this new format. It's in Las Vegas in the summer. It's at the Four Seasons Hotel, which is like a kind of cool luxury hotel inside of Mandalay Bay. Um, and it's less of a trade show. There's no exhibit hall and more of a a, a conference with a, um, sort of an interesting approach to content curation. What they do is they, they have um, keynotes that everyone attends on a topic, and then they have breakout sessions, which are deeper dives on the topics from the keynote, and you sort of pick the the specific tactic that you're most interested in for the deeper dive. So you might have like a, a, a keynote. I mean, there are a bunch of good retailers that did keynotes, uh, Zoo Lily, uh, uh, DSW Shoes, Untucked, uh, Dick Sporting Goods, Peapod, uh, Lily Pulitzer, True Value, H&M, Just Fab, I think were the, all the main presenters. And, you know, you might see the, the CMO giving a, a a presentation on the keynote is a high level case study about what they're doing. And then you might have the, the director of email marketing doing a breakout session specifically on, on Dick strategy around AB testing emails, for example, if that was what was interesting to you. Um, and so you both, you got a mix of kind of high level um, strategic content and like, you know, more uh, hands-on tactical button pushing uh, content as well, which I liked. Very cool. What were what were your your uh, your most and least favorite topics? Um, yeah. So there, you know, um, everyone is uh, uh, tackling different aspects of what I call the next best dollar problem. That like uh, a a lot of the traditional tactics that that retailers have used to drive traffic and drive conversion, like. Um, either aren't working as well as they used to or are becoming more expensive and more competitive. Um, and so, you know, all retailers are challenged with like, what is the right mix of tactics and, and, you know, how do we evaluate what tactics to do? And then, you know, how do we optimize and get the best bang for the buck for all of those, like primarily traffic generation tactics. So a lot of, um, sort of interesting examples of how to tackle influencer marketing and email marketing and um, uh, like shopping cart abandonment campaigns and, and uh, topics that we've talked about for a while, but like kind of what the, the latest state of the art is in optimizing those tactics. So, you know, there, there's a bunch of general stuff there. Um, and then the, the, the first keynote of the day was sort of a, uh, a much more um, overview of the market keynote, which is uh, from a, a, an acquaintance and former colleague of yours, uh, Pascal Finette, who's um, uh, at Singularity University. But I think you hired him at Channel Advisor at one point. Yeah, this goes way back. Pascal uh, is a uh, just a super smart person, and he ran Germany for us for a while. He, he was uh, he's a great guy, and we've stayed in touch. So hopefully. He gave a gave a good yeah. presentation there. So I thought he did a really good job, and his his whole pr- uh, presentation um, it was sort of an interesting angle on something we've talked a lot about about bifurcation in retail. Um, and he had a, an interesting paradigm for it. Like he he talked about traditional retail being a pyramid, and at the bottom of the pyramid you had um, very high volume, uh, low margin transactions. Um, in uh, at the top of the pyramid, you had much lower volume, higher margin transactions, and so you know for the most part, it's like um, 
discounters and super high efficiency stuff at the bottom of that pyramid. So that's that's Walmart, TJ Maxx, dollar stores, things like that. And at the very top of the pyramid, it's it's typically luxury brands. Um, and, you know, then there are a bunch of retailers that are uh, historically a compromise of those two things. Right. And so that's that's all like the mall based apparel companies. That's, you know, that's Gap. That's Bed Bath and Beyond. It's Staples. It's all these um, these different retailers. And his premise was that for most of the history of retail, um, the best place to be was that compromise in between the two extremes. And that as a result of our our current disruption in the marketplace, like what's fundamentally happened is um, the customers have all bifurcated to either the the super high efficiency retailers at the bottom and the super high value, you know, high luxury retailers at the top. Um, And the the segment of retail that's getting decimated are, are all those retailers that are trying to live in the middle. And so he takes his pyramid and he. He takes the bottom and the top and flips them around, and it's it's sort of a uh, like a uh, an hourglass. So the the pyramid has become an hourglass. Don't get and and the 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 dramatic conclusion being, don't get stuck in the middle. The sands of time are running out. Yeah, it was a little awkward that I'm sitting next to the whole Gap team as he pops up a slide that says, "and the gap is in the middle." <laughs> <laughs> They whip out their computers and start working on their resumes. I don't think it was news to any of them that that was a challenge they had to overcome. <laughs> um, yeah, but so that was a good conference. And of course, like because it was a little smaller, it's maybe about 400 attendees. Um, the networking, um, you know, is one of the highlights. Uh, you know, I got to see a lot of old friends of yours and mine and uh, meet meet some new friends and uh, share a couple adult beverages and, and uh, make fun of people. Yeah. How about... Um were our digitally native vertical brands there represented? Uh, there were. So like um, uh, Just Fab was one of the presenters. Um, there were a number of um, the DMVBs sort of in attendance. Um, so they, they definitely had some some representation. But it, it, it was a pretty interesting mix of, uh, you know, frankly, you know, all all portions of that of that pyra- of Pascal's Pyramid. Cool. What other what other takeaways can you share with us? Uh, you're grilling me. Um, I mean, like, <laughs> I feel like those are the the big ones um, that we have time to talk about right now. Um, because I heard a rumor. Um, I know you have this whole separate gig in the automotive industry that you're cheating on me with. Um, and I heard uh, you were at an, uh, an auto event while I was here. So did you did you get any new cars? Uh, I did not, um, but it was fun because this was an event that was actually in my backyard. Um, so one of the publishers in the auto space, I didn't even know this until till recently, is based out of Cary, North Carolina, which is in the Research Triangle Park area. And they put on an annual kind of, uh, it's kind of funny how things, once you've done this in several industries, it's it's relatively similar to kind of our e-commerce world. So they have kind of like the big show that everyone goes to, but that's kind of like, you know, the current state. Um, and then they have the more forward looking show that they kind of do um, that's smaller and more intimate. So, so kind of like NRF next for autos. Uh, and then this was in Raleigh. So it was actually nice. I got to drive to the conference I was going to. Um, so I was invited to speak about the changing car ownership landscape, which is not the topic of our podcast, but it, it's kind of fun. You know, there's in, in the, 
you know, my world, my e-commerce world and my auto world are all colliding. So we, we talk a lot about these new models. Uh, the most popular ones are, there's two companies, one's Turo and one's Getaround. The CEO of Turo is an eBay dude. And then the Getaround uh, folks are, are, are essentially both marketplaces. So, so it's kind of fun to take kind of what we've learned and talk about all the time and see it seeping into the auto world. Um, another interesting company in that space is called ACV auctions, where there's all these physical car auctions out there that require acres and acres of land and kind of silly because you ship all the cars there. Uh, and then, you know, people fly there and then walk around and, and bid on the items and then they load them back up and ship them somewhere else. Um, so there's two shippings in there. Uh, there's this ACV auction company has gone and they've just done a digital marketplace around that. So, so very kind of eBay 1.0-esque. So, so it's, it's fun to be in a different industry, but then see the, the similarities. The, the other fun thing is a lot of the presentations were, you know, how do we make it like easy for people to buy cars? And so Carvana has really disrupted that world by effectively taking e-commerce stuff that we know uh, well and applying it to used cars. So now all the dealers are trying to figure out, you know, Hey, if Jason walks in on a, on a, Sunday afternoon in Chicago, how can I sell him a car in less than eight hours? <laughs> so they're, they're trying to, it's kind of funny. They're trying to figure out, you know, the, kind of the basic blocking and tackling of that, that we've had in e-commerce for a long time. But, um, but it's funny to watch them figure that out. And there's different set of vendors and different set of players. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it's funny. Um, you know, I get teased a lot from, uh, my tenure at Blockbuster Entertainment, which is now kind of a joke. Um, but we we sold the company for a bunch of money. And uh, a lot of the management team and the, the founder of Blockbuster um, took that cash and started AutoNation. And the whole, the whole premise, even back then, was like the inventory in any given used car dealership is the local inventory in that one dealership. So, you know, a very small assortment for each shopper. But what you really need to do is aggregate the assortment across the whole the whole country, right? And that's that sounds like that's essentially what's happening with these auctions as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, so the traditional models are all changing. So the CarMexes of the world are now adding digital. And it's just kind of funny to watching the, yeah. the same waves. We we're kind of in the, you know, the sixth inning or whatever you want to say. I guess Amazon would say day one, but you know, we've been at day one for 20 years. So yeah. uh, the, the auto industry, it feels like it's way earlier in that. And um, it's going to go faster because we don't we don't have all the you know, waiting for people to trust payments and smartphones and broadband and all that. It's all, all here today. So it's, it's just, it feels even more chaotic um, to the folks that are in the middle of it. Sure. I will say, and I've been following Carvana a little bit as a, uh, a sort of digital shopping experience. And uh, there's a bunch to admire there, but from the commercials, like you get the impression that if you bought a car on your mobile phone from Carvana, it would get delivered in this cool Carvana delivery vehicle. Or you'd go to a vending machine and the, the car would come out of the vending machine. And I was kind of disappointed to find out that, like, yeah, in most cases, some dude's just going to drive the car you bought to your house. Uh, here, we most of them are delivered on the little flatbeds. They don't uh, have the – I think on the commercial, they show this really big one, but they bring them on these little flatbeds. Okay, cool. Yeah, you, you buy – they're probably selling so many cars in Chicago that, that they're having to deliver them that way. Gotcha. Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that because that felt a little bait and switchy. And I'm hoping they've all been detailed by Get Spiffy before they get to me. That's what we're working on. There's a lot of lot of cars to clean out there. Thanks for bringing that up. Hey, I'm here for you, man. <laughs>
Cool. So one of the big news items we wanted to talk about is last week, Amazon revealed their second quarter earnings. Um, since they came out, the stock's been down about 10%, feeling a little bit of pressure. And what, what happened there is it was kind of a mixed quarter. So, so Amazon, if you look over the long arc since they went public, um, they kind of, you know, if I was at a whiteboard, I would draw these kind of stair steps there. And, and so what happens is they'll, um, They'll invest a little bit, so the stair goes sideways, and everyone's kind of like, what's happening? Is this going to work out? And then through that investment cycle, revenue growth will accelerate, and everyone's happy on Wall Street. And then Amazon will say, well, we need to go through another investment cycle. So they've been, you know, I think we've all gotten pretty used to this. Um, and they 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 telegraphed this in Q1. If, if you remember, that's when they took the opportunity to announce Next day prime. Um, so that's the real theme of the quarter is uh, you know, the mixed aspect of it. So the positive kind of macro theme of the quarter was one day prime really increased demand. Um, so that was that was good and exceeded Wall Street's expectations pretty handily on the top line. But at the same time, um, delivering on one day prime uh, really chewed away at profitability. So you know, I kind of had this mental image of they they. They pressed a button on the website, and then the total chaos happened at the fulfillment centers, and they're just kind of getting their arms around that. Um, also, you throw Prime Day in there. That wasn't in Q2, but I, you know, just kind of the body language was that it was a lot, a little bit harder and more expensive to implement one day Prime than they thought. Um, so we're going to dig in. The next lo- level down um, is, and we thought we'd kind of cover um, positives and negatives. Uh, we drew straws, and I got the positive side. Um, Jason I got the short straw with negatives. So, so on the positive side, um, revenue accelerated. So revenue at Amazon grew 21% year over year, excluding any kind of benefit or headwind from uh, foreign currency. Uh, and that exceeded expectations by about 3%, which is pretty material at Amazon's, you know, billions and billions of dollars to exceed by 3%, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars kind of come out of that. Um, one, one area that, that everyone looks at pretty closely is within the e-commerce business or what they call the online unit, the there's this unit growth. So that's effectively the, the number of things sold. So paid units um, that had kind of slowed down over the years to about 10%. That, that metric, uh, which is kind of a forward-looking metric, that popped up to 18%. So, so that's probably the best signal that the one-day prime is working really well. Uh, and then I think on the call, Amazon did call out that, you know, that that was driven, that acceleration was driven by the introduction of one-day prime. Um, one-day prime's benefit was largely centered around North America uh, because in most of, if you go to, to you know, uh, the UK, for example, it's such a small little island there that pretty much Prime has been one day for a while. So throughout a lot of Europe, they're already kind of at one day Prime. So it hasn't been as impactful on the international side. So a lot of this growth came from the North America side. So North America revenue accelerated to 23% year over year compared to 19% in Q1. That's a 4% bump due to one day Prime. Um, and then um, the other thing that made Wall Street excited was, uh, you know, whenever Amazon releases a quarter, they talk about the next quarter. So Wall Street had been projecting Q3 to be, um, you know, uh, X, and then Amazon guided that pretty significantly ahead, kind of keeping it this mid-20s growth rate at the midpoint. Uh, so I talked about that. 
Um, another kind of interesting kind of in, as we get kind of inside baseball here um, on the call, Amazon talked about, you know, Amazon is very methodical and they use a lot of metrics. So on the call, they revealed that they have about 10 million items right now that are in this kind of one day prime. So think about these concentric rings where you have at the center, you know, at the you know same day you have um, prime now and then some cities have kind of that same day delivery. Um, that's, you know, prime now is like, what is it like 5,000 SKUs? And then I think maybe you get up to 10,000, 20,000 SKUs for same day. So then the next ring out, which is the next day is now 10 million. Uh, and then the next ring out, which is, um, you know, I think there's about 30 to 40 million prime eligible products total. So there's going to be like the next ring out, which is two day is going to probably have call it 30 to 40 million. And then the next ring out, it's going to have you know, hundreds of millions, which is the third party network. So um, they're really kind of focused on this, this kind of ring that is that one day prime. So, you know, theoretically, I think they could get, you know, uh, there's 40 million items effectively available to put into that one day prime. Will they get it all there? I, I don't know. We'll have to kind of wait and see how they go, but 10 million is not a, not a bad start. So, so it's going to be interesting. And now they've revealed that number. Um, they'll get asked a lot about it. And we'll try to track it on the show here for you guys. So you can kind of see if I was, if I was them, I would kind of, you know, try to get that up to 20 million by holiday. I, th I think that would be, that would cause a pretty material holiday bump for them, which would be good. Um, last couple things within third party, um, that segment of revenue grew 23% year over year, um, which was a nice little acceleration retail subscriptions, which is kind of where prime lives. Um, that grew 37%. Um, and then one thing we watch on the show really closely is the Amazon ads. Now they put in this other category and while she analysts have a way of kind of pick, looking in there and pulling out the ads business. So, so the ads business was up 37% year over year, uh, really nice growth. Uh, and then the estimates are that this is at about a $13 billion run rate, um, growing 42% year over year. So, um, the projections have kind of been edging up. Um, we've talked about this for a couple of years that they were, they were, they were pretty high. Now I think they're raising them. So um, I'm seeing kind of north of 30 billion uh, from Amazon ads by 2024. Uh, that would, uh, you're the ad guy. Um, that would definitely put them up into the, the Facebook kind of, you know, uh, level. Certainly that would exceed, I think Twitter and Snapchat. Um, uh by today's standards and they're not growing as fast as, as Amazon's business. So that would put them up in that kind of elite air with Facebook and Google. If I'm, if I'm remembering my, my ad. Yeah. They're, they're a clear third. They're like, yeah. you know, they still have a significant amount of ground to make up on, on Amazon or on uh, Facebook and Google. Um, but they also have like a pretty good gap uh, ahead of everyone else. Yeah, so those were the positives. So then the question is, why was the stock kind of down? And I'll turn it over to our curmudgeonly uh, Jason to give you the negatives. Yeah, I like to think it's because I'm such a positive guy that it, it just feels better getting the bad news from me. Um, but uh, one one side note on the advertising, I saw a new, uh, an interesting data point today that I thought was kind of fascinating. Um, there's this company uh, out there, Jump Shot. We've talked about them before Uh they have uh, tricked a bunch of consumers in install, installing their plugin in their browser um, for for a variety of utilities. But then what it means is they get to collect data about how all those consumers are are shopping in their web browser, and they they sell that industry data. So they get they claim they can watch millions of shoppers in North America on Amazon, and they said that in January of last year. 
6.6% of all product detail pages that people looked at on Amazon were clicks from a sponsored ad. Um, so uh, by December, it was 10.5% of all clicks. And so there's this like, they, they have monthly data and you, you just see this steady step up that like Amazon has essentially doubled the amount of page views as a result of these these paid placements. And that this very much follows uh, a trend you see on the other big advertising platforms that, you know, originally, uh, you know, Facebook had a lot of organic content and Google had a lot of organic content. And over time, as they've, they've, you know, uh, optimized the monetization on their platforms, less and less of the, the content we see on their platforms is, is organic and more of it's paid. So we're, we're seeing a very similar progression happening for better or worse on Amazon. Um, but flipping to the the negatives from the earning report, uh, the first one was uh, that their AWS uh, growth rate was slightly below expectation. So um, to put this in perspective, uh, the growth rate was still 37%. Um, so it's a very fast-growing business. It's a wildly profitable business, and Amazon has by far um, the the largest share of that business. And I would say like one other positive about that business is that there's still a ton of growth left in that business. So, you know, by most people's estimates, something like five to 10% of all the computing jobs in the world are done in the cloud and the rest are all still done in local data centers and things like that. So there's still a huge amount of growth as compute migrates from, from uh, local to the cloud, and Amazon, you know, has this this clear commanding lead, but the rate of their growth is starting to slow down, and uh, particularly Microsoft and Google's, um, while much smaller than Amazon, are now growing faster than Amazon. So that's like uh, not unexpected, but uh, it's interesting to see that play out. Um, and obviously, there's a a lot of mistaken impressions out there that the that uh, that the revenue from AWS like pays for the unprofitable retail business for Amazon, and hopefully all our listeners have have learned to debunk that. But be that as it may, the AWS revenue is is uh, very beneficial to Amazon. Yeah, and this this is not a cloud computing podcast, but um, Microsoft actually their cloud revenue just passed their non cloud revenue, um, and that was really well received by Wall Street, and they are now in that that you know, uh, elite trillion dollar market cap where Amazon has kind of fallen um, well below that due to you know, some of the headwinds from this investment cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's re- super interesting to see this, this Microsoft resurgence. They also announced that they're going to invest more than a billion dollars in uh, this uh, open AI platform that they're uh, um, going to accelerate via uh, Azure, which is their cloud platform. So lots of interesting stuff happening in the cloud space. I like to think we're all the beneficiaries because the, the tools and services that these guys are all offering, like they're, they're so competitive with each other that they keep wildly improving and expanding, um, every quarter. So, so it's a, a, a fun space. Um, but going back to the retail side of Amazon's business a little bit more, uh, Overall gross profit um, decelerated at Amazon, so it was twenty two percent versus the last quarter was twenty seven percent. As you mentioned, like they took a little hit because they had a good quarter last year, and then their guidance was that they were gonna 
make more capital investments in the subsequent quarter and expected things to go down. And that's that's kind of how it it played out. But they, um, uh, you know, still still it's no fun to tell people that you you made less profit than you you did in the previous quarter. Um, their um, operating income was also down a little bit. Um and you know, as you, I think you already mentioned uh, their their uh, their uh, third quarter guidance uh, was also a little lower as a result of this slightly lower profitability. And I look at all three of those things, and the, to me, those are all symptoms of um, they made this shift to one day prime, and it was a little more expensive and difficult and messy. Um, than maybe they they anticipated, and so in uh, you know I think uh, as we've talked about in the past, um, any inefficiencies you have when you accelerate everything, they they get amplified and exacerbated. And so you know I it, uh, the the putting the accelerator on a lot of these processes, if you don't have the exact right inventory in every fulfillment center, instead of having to expedite a shipment from one fulfillment center to a customer, now you're having to expedite shipments from two fulfillment centers to a customer and things like that. So, um, uh, I, like this is, this doesn't seem like a horrible shock to me. And I, I feel like I I have a pretty high degree of confidence that, that Amazon is going to operationally get this stuff all squared away and um, you know we may talk about this in in other news later in the show, but like, however much pain it's causing Amazon to do one day prime delivery, um, a bunch of other retailers have already announced that they're going to match the one day service, and others probably will. And I can virtually guarantee you, it will cause more pain to all those other retailers to try to hit that service level than it's causing Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some of the Wall Street folks are kind of saying, you know, that it's a knockout punch, and there's there's a lot of interesting um, kind of language around that. That the the demand they're seeing from it, you know, they're attributing to to really kind of is going to if it stays and Amazon can get the cost down, it, it's going to really chew away at at the the share of not only online but the offline folks will move to online faster. Yeah, uh, I know. You know, Cow and. Um... Uh, follows Amazon pretty closely, and they they um, they have a pretty sophisticated model for how much opportunity they think there is for Amazon and how quickly they'll grow. And then they do this big consumer survey every quarter. And so, right after Amazon announced this last quarter, they surveyed all the customers about how their shopping behaviors might be different if they could get stuff in one day. And they had enough confidence from that survey that they had to dramatically increase the. Uh, addressable market in their in their model, and therefore, like the the amount of headroom for growth Amazon had, um, because they felt like offering one day delivery was going to change a lot of shopping habits and and help Amazon capture a lot more wallet share. Yeah, one final announcement they made that's near and dear to your heart is they talked about adding two more ghost stores, which will bring the total to thirteen. Yeah, um, and I. It depends on how you read the announcement, but uh, let's say there's two to four that are currently scheduled to open. So maybe two of those they had already announced and they added two more, but two of them are in Chicago and uh, uh, we have a number of ghost stores. I want to say we have three or four here now, Um, but one of the new ones that's opening here in Chicago is actually opening uh, in one of the buildings I have an office in. So it's at the Merchandise Mart. Um, So uh, that'll be fun. Um, this was not 
Amazon news, but there was a sort of interesting article um, that that uh, came out that uh, someone had done an analysis of the the uh, shopping carts, one of the credit card companies of the like spend in the Amazon Go stores, and they reported that the average ring in the Amazon Go store is much lower than the average ring in a traditional convenience store. So, so they were saying that like. Um, a typical consumer visits a ghost store like two to five times a quarter and a typical consumer visits a 7-Eleven like four to seven times a quarter. So they get 7-Eleven gets slightly more visits than a ghost store. But then the average ring uh, in the convenience store was like $25 and in the ghost store it was like $14. And so the the um, takeaway from this is that you know people are tending to buy one item or just a couple items in the ghost store on a slightly bigger cart in a typical convenience store and it adds to the 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 high level speculations that the these ghost stores at the moment are wildly unprofitable so it's it's very interesting and uh typical amazon that like in spite of the fact that the the unit economics don't don't seem to work at the moment um you know that's not curtailing amazon's ambition to keep keep scaling and growing and learning. Have you tried the, um, uh, the coffee? I, I've so seen some of these newer ones have a coffee thing. Have you tried that? Yeah, they do have a coffee bar. I confess I have not because I have very goofy specific taste in coffee, but I will, I will have to try the coffee when they open one in the merchandise mart. Well, we need you to take one for the, the podcast team. And even if it's sub below your standards, we, we want to kind of hear all the gory details yeah yeah i'm embarrassed i'm embarrassed to say that that i haven't i mean i think two things you think of when you think of the retail geek are amazon ghost stores and coffee so somewhat embarrassing to me yeah. um you can just walk out without paying that's gonna be even more fun yeah yeah uh as i always like to say they they invented just walk out but they broke just walk in <laughs> i wonder if you go in get your coffee drink it and then fill the cup again while they charge you for two what why don't you test that for us yeah, well, yeah, that it, it's funny. There, there is a little bit of a history or background. Like you think you're joking, um, but uh, this this ties into this like kind of broader theme that there was some news about um, these last couple of weeks, which is about Amazon's overall grocery ambitions. And the the reason I say this that ties into coffee at ghost stores is because um, there there was an interesting uh, uh, Recode article about the history of the Go store and the evolution of it. And um, it started out as a full-service grocery concept. Um, and, in fact, the idea was that you'd, you'd shop all of the, the perishables um, in a live store that use Go technology to just let you grab whatever you want and leave, um, and that you'd buy all your consumables – um, by just ordering them on your mobile phone and they'd all be packed in a fulfillment center that was attached to the store and they'd be waiting for you as you walked out of the store. Um, and somewhere along the line, uh, it was deemed too complicated. And one of the biggest reasons it was too complicated was all of these items in a grocery store that um, have variable quantities that you have to weigh or count um, or, uh, you know, have different sizes of the same thing were tricky for the camera to recognize. And so the camera knowing whether you have 12 or 16 ounces of coffee in your, uh, in your cup, and to your point, whether you drank half of it and refilled it, um, is a 
tricky edge case that apparently Amazon aspired to do originally and then kind of avoided when they rolled out the Go store. Um, so, uh, like, it's interesting how Amazon handles that uh, in these Go stores, but they, they, there is now construction going on in the original uh, 10,000-square-foot lease that Amazon took in Seattle when they thought they were going to open a grocery store. And so there's lots of speculation that in the not-too-distant future, we're going to see a new grocery concept that that may include some of the Amazon Go um, uh, visual search capability, computer vision capability, but but uh, that Amazon may be uh, stepping back to that more ambitious original original vision. So we're all eager to see what happens when they they peel the the paper off the windows of this store in Seattle. Um. So that uh, is kind of interesting in the grocery space. Uh, another interesting uh, tidbit of news I saw recently from our, uh, you know, from the the Seattle corner of our country um, that kind of feels very Amazon esque to me is Starbucks made an interesting announcement. Uh, they did a partnership with a POS company to sell a productized version of their mobile order and pay to other restaurants. Hmm. So have they announced any, who's going to be taking that or, or how's it going to work? Yeah. So, um, they, I, I did not see in the, in this original article, um, who like it may have already been pre-sold to. Um, but essentially this was like the chief digital officer of Starbucks that helped build mobile order and pay, left Starbucks to start this new company called Brightloom. Um, and now, fast forward a year later, Starbucks has done a deal with him at Brightloom uh, to sell the the technology stack and the software stack to other retailers. And to me, that feels very um, Amazon AWS, that like you you build something to solve an internal problem, and then you say like, you know, rather than keep it as a proprietary advantage for us, we're going to scale it and monetize it by by uh, selling it to the rest of the industry. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who, who uptakes that or not. Yeah. Um, so I'm both interested to see if other people uptake it. There are a lot of categories that maybe aren't directly competitive with Starbucks but want this capability. Um, and so... You know, like it, it, it's easy to imagine it being successful. Motor, mobile order and pay is a huge deal in the in the restaurant space right now, and and something with the credibility of the Starbucks offering would be interesting. What I'm super interested to see is um, included in this deal: would they ever consider uh, using Starbucks as a payment method? So, could I buy my Five Guys burger on my Starbucks card, for example? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how if it's a universal payment system or or just kind of, you know, a, a complete private label into another brand. Yeah, I kind of suspect the first version will not include payments, but it's interesting to think about. Um, and, you know, it could also open the door. We've seen a little bit of this, like Kroger has invented some in-store technology that they're trying to sell to other retailers. Like, it's just going to be interesting to see if this is a a play that becomes a more you know common part of the the playbook going forward. Where I would argue historically, whenever a retailer invents anything proprietary, they they want to keep it as far away from the rest of the market as possible and keep it as a, sort of a, a unique competitive advantage. Um, 
But there was also a lot of uh, logistics news in the last couple of weeks. Have you been following all this, Scott? I have. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, you know, I, I kind of view that, that Amazon has caused so much disruption. Everyone's kind of working to keep up. How, what do you think about it? Yeah, no, for sure. And some of it very directly. So um, this is slightly old news at this point, but like in the beginning of July, um, FedEx had their earnings and either during that earnings call or within a day of that earnings call, they announced that they were not renewing their contract to provide express services to Amazon. Um, And when you first hear that, you go, oh, my God, that's a huge deal. Um, Bear in mind that FedEx had the smallest chunk of Amazon's delivery and FedEx has a couple products that they sell to Amazon, only one of which is this this uh, uh, air delivery. And so this is really FedEx walking away from one piece of Amazon business. Um, and, you know, if you're a regular listener to the show, hopefully it wasn't a total shock to you, because as I've said for a long time, um, the, the carriers are having trouble rapidly scaling their capacity. And, uh, and so if you have a finite capacity, uh, do you want to sell that capacity to the highest volume user that, you know, has the most negotiating power and pays the least? Or do you want to sell that capacity to, you know, smaller retailers with more with less leverage um, that will have to pay more for that? And, and you know, apparently FedEx answer was, yeah, we, we can make we can better product uh, profitize our our capacity by selling it to other retailers and walking away from, from Amazon who presumably, you know, as, as they built more and more of their own capability or looking, you know, we're, we're turning the screws for a better and better deal from FedEx. Um, so that was big news at the same time in that earnings call, they, they did acknowledge that Amazon is a potential competitor in the space, which like that also should not be, uh, shocking, but like you know, up to this this point, like FedEx had consistently said that that Amazon is a great partner and not a competitor. So it's kind of funny that they finally acknowledge that. Um, yeah, I think they've all slipped it into their uh, their ten Ks. Yeah, um, you know, there's yeah. this kind of competitor kind of category, and everyone's kind of started to put Amazon in there. Yeah, and I think it got triggered first by Amazon listing them as competitors, <laughs> um, which is never <laughs> never good news. Um, the the FedEx and UPS are doing some interesting moves, though. Um, they uh, going back to the capacity problem. They are both going to seven day a week deliveries. So they've added Sunday as a delivery day. Um, that uh, is going to be interesting to watch out. Uh, you know, Amazon, which does a lot of their own deliveries here in Chicago already, like has been delivering on Sunday for some time, and Amazon has a U.S. postal deal with uh, uh, for Sunday delivery. So, like, you know, I feel like the Consumer expectation is 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 expanding to seven days, and now we're seeing the other carriers uh, try to figure out an offering in that space. And they're also doing some interesting things about reverse logistics. Um, and so uh, um, UPS and FedEx have both like greatly expanded the their locker program and their pickup locations. And I think. Um, uh, last week, UPS announced that they had done a deal with CVS, Michaels, and Advanced Auto Parts to use those 12,000 stores as uh, pickup locations for UPS packages. Um, and in my mind, that the CVS one is particularly interesting because uh, CVS, I believe, is also a pickup and return location for Amazon. So, you know, uh, 
it seems like as the healthcare industry is getting more challenging and and uh, the prescription drug business is getting more challenging, like CVS is doing some interesting things to repurpose some of the the square footage in their stores. Have you? Is there any anecdotal evidence how these return programs are doing for everybody? Like, is Kohl's benefiting from the Amazon thing, or yeah, are people just kind of like? So the third party traffic monitors feel like Kohl's traffic was up. Um, and Kohl's claim that their traffic was up um, uh, demonstrably in the pilot stores when they first when they first started taking returns. And so Kohl's has totally doubled down. They've expanded uh, the returns to all their stores. And Kohl's has really improved the logistics around the returns. So you can now walk into Kohl's with just a, a raw I- unpackaged item that you bought from Amazon and your order on your smartphone and Kohl's will take it back, box it, and do the whole thing for you. Uh, CVS will take that package back, but they don't do all of that boxing logistics for you. You have to bring the package kind of ready to go in a CVS store. Um, and I know people always say, like, gosh, Col- uh, uh, Kohl's is in bed with their competitor. I actually think this is the smartest partnership I've ever seen a retailer do with Amazon because um, this this partnership is not giving Amazon access to Kohl's customers in any way. This this partnership is really exclusively giving Kohl's access to Amazon's customers. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I wonder, um, I guess I'll never announce it, but, you know, there's some percentage that are, are shopping in the store, which is what obviously what they're after. Yeah, exactly. If you have to walk through that store, you're going to serendipitously discover something. And Kohl's is particularly well suited for that because they're a little bit of a treasure hunt store anyway in that, you know, they tend to have a thin inventory, you know, of, uh, of you know, that, that churns regularly with lots of deals. And so if you are a Kohl's shopper and that triggers a couple extra visits when you're returning something, you know, you're very likely to discover something. Um, and if you're not a Kohl's shopper, it's even a bigger win for Kohl's if they get you to come in that store for the first time. And then now I'm going to be the curmudgeon. Then you, uh, every time I go to Kohl's, I get in line behind someone that's optimizing their, their triangulation between like, uh, some kind of cash back thing, Kohl's cash and something else. And it's crazy. Like, yeah, we call it like doing a leverage buyout out. on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and then invariably they'll like walk away from a cart full of stuff to run and get like, Oh, this was, it's not BOGO, but you know, if I bought this and this, I got double Kohl's cash and I can apply them in this. And then they want to split the transaction with their significant other. And it's just like, no, yep. they need a line for people that like just want to buy stuff and get out of the store. So for sure, that's a common complaint in a number of retailers and Kohl's in particular, like the more sophisticated those, those reward programs are and the greater percentage of customers that are in those reward programs and take full advantage the more acute that problem is. Um, in the case of the Amazon returns, it doesn't hurt you, though, because the Amazon returns is a separate counter within Kohl's. So you're not waiting in line behind any of those people to return your Amazon package. Um, and uh, Kohl's and a bunch of other retailers like Macy's, a big part of their answer for you is if you're not that super high uh, rewards customer that's doing that, really complicated transaction they're they're trying to get you to do um, mobile um scan and go and and check out without standing in line because they they know that checkout is a big a big pain point for them sign me up yeah uh, i'm not sure that the average coal shopper macy shopper has 
been as early an adopter of that technology as you probably are. But like, I, I do think they're going to continue to get more and more traction and we're seeing more and more stores um, uh, go that way. And that that's actually a perfect segue to uh, well, something we'll talk about in uh, in just a minute. But I had one more news topic I wanted to uh, touch on before we get there. Okay. Um, so there's this awesome quote I use all the time that uh, I think Andy Dunn uh, originally used maybe four or five years ago. Uh, e-commerce is awesome as long as you don't care about EBITDA. Mm. And the the sort of ominous, uh, impre- you know, uh, message there is customers are loving it. It's a it's a you know better customer experience in many ways for a lot of use cases. Uh, but but one thing you shouldn't lose sight of is the the unit economics of, of e-commerce are almost always unfavorable versus traditional retail unit economics and two big reasons for that um are shipping and returns and it's it's just been interesting i've seen some some uh not optimal news for e-commerce sites on both of those those costs this this month um so, you know, one thing, uh, there's a report every year that Comscore does called the State of the Online Retail Industry, and they share a bunch of uh, data and trends uh, um, that they see from their, you know, millions of customers that shop in their panel. And one of the stats they always share every year is what percentage of sales every quarter um, were sold with free shipping. And uh, so uh, for holiday this year, 85% of all e-commerce orders had free shipping. And like three years ago, it was 65% of all commerce um, orders had, had free shipping. So uh, increasingly, this is, probably isn't surprising, customers expect free shipping and they only buy when they get free shipping. Um, and that that certainly uh, you know ramps up the, the profitability challenge for retailers. And then, you know, when you you talk about like you know, Amazon stepping on the gas and Walmart and Target quickly following them with one day shipping. Uh, you know, when you now have to give away free one day shipping, um, that's a real challenge to to e-commerce profitability. And then for many retailers, the double whammy is returns tend to be much higher online. And I saw a horrific stat this month. Um, there's a logistics company called Optoro that did a study and I'm not sure if I totally believe this. I haven't been able to look into their methodology, but they are claiming that the average rate of returns um, for e-commerce orders over the last five years has essentially doubled. So the percent, the percentage of returns at every e-commerce retailer are twice as high today as they were in 2014. Um, and I, uh, I I don't know if that exact number is accurate. This came from a a, a Vogue article. I'll put a, um, a a link in the show notes. But but even if it's just directionally accurate, if returns are going up, um, that that's a huge stress to profitability. And the example I always like to use um, when uh, uh, Revolve had to disclose their finances. <laughs> Uh, Revolve is a, a digitally native vertical brand in the apparel space. Um, and in 2018, they had uh, almost a half billion dollars in online sales. They sold 499 million online. And on their books, they they wrote down 531 million dollars in costs associated with returns. Wow. That's not scalable. No, no. So the unit economics on that suck. Yeah, it's uh minus 20% or something. 
Exactly. Um, and so obviously there's a ton of people working on the problem of returns and there's a lot of, you know, interesting things that, that people are doing to both make it less expensive to do returns and to uh, diminish people's interest in returns. But like early on in the e-commerce industry, you know, everyone encouraged you to to buy multiple sizes and send back what you didn't need. I think of sort of Zappos as, you know, being one of the first big retailers to really do that. And now they're desperately trying to untrain all those customers to stop doing that. Yeah. Um, so not, so, you know, that's going to be interesting stuff to watch as more and more of uh, sales volume shifts to e-commerce. We're going to have to figure out these things. Yeah. I'm not sure how you untrain people uh, out of free shipping and, and, Returns, so it's going to be tough. Yeah, I haven't seen it done. In general, it's very hard to unring a bell. Yeah. Um, So wrapping up as we're coming up on time here, uh, I have a couple upcoming trips that I'm excited about, um, and we'll get to talk more about uh, some of them. But I'm uh, actually headed to uh, Indianapolis and Dallas next week. And uh, one of the reasons I'm excited about Dallas is there's a couple stores that I haven't been to yet in the Dallas market. So uh, one of the stores is Neighborhood Market. That uh, This is one of the physical marketplace stores uh, that like merchandise a bunch of digitally native brands and others in a physical space. And the the, the store essentially collects rent from all the, the brands and the brands keep all the, the profit of their, of their sales. So it's sort of a digital marketplace in a physical manifestation. Um, they're going to be opening a store in New York soon, but I'm going to get to visit their original Plano store next week. And then uh, also in Dallas, Sam's Club has a store called Sam's Club Now, which uh, per our Scan and Go conversation, Sam, Sam's Club Now doesn't have a traditional checkout. So the only way to get out of the score is to scan and go. And they have some super interesting uh, virtual reality feature or augmented reality features to uh, let you get better product information and wayfinding and stuff in the store. So it's a a store that's totally designed around using your mobile phone while you're in the store. So I'm, I'm uh, excited to see that. Um, and then uh, a little later in the month, uh, uh, the on August 20th, I'm going to be at uh, Etel East, which is a, a long-running e-commerce show uh, in Boston. And I know you can't join me, but um, uh, I will be sure to take good notes and do a trip report there, and we uh, may be able to put down a couple of interesting interviews from some of the uh, from some interesting retailers that are attending that show. So uh, hopefully more on that. And then uh, if any of our our listeners um, are in Brazil or um, are familiar with Brazil, I'm going to be doing my first trip to Brazil ever at the end of this month. And I'm uh, uh, excited that uh, uh, Mercado Libra has invited me to come speak at their customer conference. So looking forward to checking out some of the, the Brazilian retail and uh, meeting a bunch of the sellers on that platform. Cool. You can school them on marketplaces. I have a feeling they already know a fair amount about marketplaces, but I'll, I'll, I'll certainly try to add my spin. Uh, but it won't be in Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, uh, talk slow so the translators can keep up. The I learned that the hard way. Well, that's that'll be easy because I'm such a slow talker just naturally. <laughs> oh wait, never mind. I'm a loud talker. That's what I am. <laughs> um, yeah. So that is all the news we have for this week. I apologize; it's probably a little longer than uh, we hoped, but uh, that's part of the ramification of us uh, not laying down a new show for a, for a little longer than usual. Yeah, thanks for joining us, everybody.
Yep. And as usual, if you uh, enjoyed this show, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. If you do have any questions or comments about any of the news from this show, feel free to hit us up on uh, our Facebook page or on Twitter. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 